Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 1st, 2018. This is episode 2173, and uh, it is uh, a Thursday. And you know what that means, listener call show. This is time for your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. You want to make a call to that number, make sure you uh, call with some bars on your phone from a quiet location. Speak up, by the way, so that I can hear you. And uh, leave me your uh, comment, your question, or your message. Try to get it as brief as possible for the question, the point, or the uh, comment, or recommendation, or whatever it is. One sentence, two sentence tops, and then give details. I promise you your call will go better that way. You'll be more likely to get through screening and on the air. So what are we going to talk about today? I have a SAW recommendation along with a homestead improvement question. I have a question on putting a value on a business. A question on what equipment and software you need to run a podcast. I have a listener letting us know that Red Yeti wears shears. My favorite kitchen shears on the planet are back in Amazon, but there is a catch. A question on what plants to put in a pond. Uh, I have a question on inline water storage, what that is in the first place, and scoping a 22, um, and why I don't really like see-through scope mounts. I'll talk about that when I answer that question. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into those questions, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. We didn't take sponsors until we were about six months into the show. Uh, that was January, February of 2009. The first sponsor that ever signed up on the sponsor program, Vic Rontal and Safe Castle Royal. 2009, here we sit in 2018. They're still sponsors of the show over nine years now. That's loyalty, folks. That's huge loyalty. So when you need something for your prepping needs, and you know that SafeCastle has almost everything that a prepper could want, consider going to SafeCastle.com for your prepping needs. They should return the favor of that loyalty. And remember, they have a discount membership program. It's uh, $29 a year, I believe, is what they sell it for now. People have to pay for it year after year after year to stay a member of it. And if you are an MSB member, you get it for free for life. Let me say that again. You get a $29 a year membership program from Save Castle Royal for free for life. And you can't even get a lifetime membership to Save Castle Royal's program any other way except through the MSB. They are a hell of a partner. And if you need something for your prepping, they got it. Next up today, HarvestEating.com. You know... I talk about all kinds of interesting things to grow on your homestead and stuff like that. Well, once you grow it, you got to eat it. You want it to taste great. And uh, you want to learn cooking from someone that understands something I've tried to teach you guys for many, many years, and that is cooking is not only a life skill, it's a, it's a technique-based system. It, cooking is not a list of recipes. Look, you can go give two different cooks the same recipe book and say, follow the recipes to the letter, and one will make you food that's like, meh. And the other one will make you feel it's like, wow. You know, the difference is the technique. It's not just the ingredients. It's how the things are done. And when you understand those techniques, you don't, you're not dependent on recipes anymore. You might use one, but it doesn't mean you're not dependent on it. And that means when you like, okay, gee, I have this and this. What can I do with these things? You know how to do it. 
That's the type of cooking you'll learn from Chef Keith Snow over at HarvestEating.com. Check out his seasoning mixes as well as online uh, courses, his podcast, his YouTube channel. All the stuff's great. You find him at HarvestEating.com. Remember, he is also an expert council member, ready to take your questions on cooking and all things related to cooking, cookware, etc., knives, you name it, here at TSP. So you can send any questions for him as well. Before we get to your questions, let's take a look at the year in history. We have a little bit longer of a segment today from the year 106, but a major turning point in the Roman Empire is about to occur. The fall of Dacia. Yeah, Democulus has been screwing around for too long, and uh, Trajan's about to take him out. There's the short verse. Here's the actual contribution to tspwiki.com by David Verne. After the spring thaw, four columns of legionnaires invaded Dacia and began taking Dacia fortresses in their march to the capital, Samagestoa. Uh, one Roman column reached the capital first and assaulted the walls. They were beaten off by defenders who threw rocks and beehives at attacking legionnaires. That'll get your friggin' attention. Once the other three columns reached the capital, Trajan, who was personally commanding the army, gave orders to prepare for a serious siege. Roman siege equipment began bombarding the city. Roman entrenchments and siege towers crept closer to the walls of every day, every day. Uh, Democulus sent an envoy to negotiate a surrender, and uh, Trajan was determined to capture and execute Democulus. He wasn't having any of it. As the hot summer months dragged on, the Romans found and destroyed the aqueducts and water pipes supplying the city with water. On the eve of the final Roman attack, the Dacians attempted to burn the city, and Democulus managed to escape with a few followers. The next day, the Romans captured the city, took thousands of cop- captives, Bilius, Bilsius, an advisor to, Bo- to Democulus, offered to tell Trajan where Democulus had hidden his gold in exchange for his freedom. Trajan agreed and learned that Democulus had redirected a nearby river and buried the gold in the riverbed. Immediately, uh, legions began to redirect the river and began digging for treasure. They uncovered almost 181 tons of gold and 364 tons of silver. Democulus fled north, hoping to seek refuge with his Samaritan allies and, retu- and return at the head of an army. A Roman cavalry detachment caught up with him, and Democulus killed himself to avoid being taken back to Rome as a prisoner. Trajan formally annexed Dacia as a Roman province and returned to Rome victorious, having put an end to the Dacian menace. It had been 150 years since Julius Caesar had conquered Gaul. Ever since Gaul was conquered, Egypt and Egypt annexed The only fighting Rome had done was in the wilds of Britain and Germania. With the treasure recovered and an influx of slaves into the markets, the Romans felt like their ancestors, who had conquered foreign lands and brought back rich plunder. Conquest and expansion were as integral to Roman culture as freedom and rugged individualism are to American culture. You also see something happen when a society begins to profit from war, And the populace of a a nation is separated from the war. They don't have to see the war. They don't have to be part of the war. They don't have to. So they're able to use force by proxy by giving their tacit consent to the war. They benefit from the war. I'll leave it at history doesn't always repeat itself, but it almost always rhymes and lets you figure it out from there. Uh, next up, let me remind you real quick before we get into your questions, if you want to help support the show, the easy, simple way to do it, join the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, and you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Just know this, if you do join and you do use your discounts, 
Your discounts will more than pay for your membership. You'll get to support the show, and you'll make a profit. So why wouldn't you join? That's the best way I can sell it to you. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, kick off uh, your calls. This one has a recommendation, uh, a question, and some commentary. Anyway, caller, take it away. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Zach from East Texas. I just had a couple things. I had a comment, um, a recommendation, and a question about uh, homestead improvement. Uh, first, uh, I'll get the recommendation out of the way. I've been using this uh, folding saw uh, made by a company called Silky uh, out of Japan. been using this saw for several years now around the house, and uh, I'm really impressed with it. Probably the best folding saw I've ever used for anything from pruning trees to, you know, clearing brush, anything in between. Um, I noticed on your uh, your items of the day you didn't have a folding saw under the tool section, so I thought that might be something you could add uh, on the comment. Uh, just a thank you for your show and a little story uh, happened to me today. Had a situation where I had to spend about eight hundred dollars on my wife's car, getting new tires and brakes and all this nonsense. So went up there to pay for it, and the guy asked me, you know, if I was going to put it on my my credit card. I had a credit card with the company, the Gateway Gateway Tire Credit Card. And in the past, I would have, you know, immediately just put it on there because. To be honest, I don't have $800 just laying around, but uh, Jack Spirico's voice in my head <laughs> talking about debt and uh, how bad it is, and I'm trying to get out of it. So I told him no. I spent uh, money I was, I'd been saving up to pay off one of my credit cards. I ended up spending that and uh feel a lot better that I didn't have to add another debt. Onto, onto what I got I'm trying to get rid of. So appreciate your messages, appreciate all your advice and everything. Um, it's really helpful. And on the question, um, I've been living in my home for, oh, about four years, and I just, uh, it's somewhere I really like living, but I know I'm not going to be there forever, probably at least another five years before I consider moving. And just, I have a lot of projects I want to get into. I want to build a fence. I've got about an acre. I want to build a fence. I want to have, you know, a garden area. I want to maybe get some chickens eventually. So I was just wondering, you know, how much of that would you say go ahead and do versus, you know, waiting, you know, since I know I'm not going to be living there forever and definitely less than 10 years I'll be moving. So just uh, wanted to pick your brain on those things. Um, if you can't, can't get back to me that's all right uh, just appreciate your show appreciate everything you're doing and uh, keep up the good work thanks that caller knows how to get a lot into a call and get away with it anyway uh let me see if i can help everybody out here with some of this stuff so the silky saws so i i looked those up on amazon they look damn good and if you want to cut something and, it, and, and, the, and the item you're buying to do the cutting with was made by the Japanese, you're probably on the right track. I mean, straight away, right off of the get-go. And, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, I looked these saws up. They look fantastic. They have great reviews. It, I, I decided I would try to pick like whatever I thought would be the best general, because they make a bunch of them, I mean dozens of them, 
And it turns out that Amazon has this weird thing they do. They won't let me link my affiliate links directly to an individual item once in a while. And these saws seem to be that. So I was looking through them. And usually on Amazon, you'll see the product and it'll say buy somebody, you know, and that'll be hyperlinked and you can pull the vendor up, see everything they offer. Well, it said buy silky and it was like, um, women's hair care products. Like they had it screwed up. As I was looking through the different models, I found one that said, you know, buy silky saws. And when I clicked that, I got all the stuff that this, this company, Silky Saws, make. Uh, and most of it is saws. There's some other cool stuff there. And I'll definitely be looking deeper in these guys. It looked like a really quality uh, manufacturer. And if you want to see what they have, there's the link in show notes today so you can take a look at uh, these Silky Saws. And it's actually a really great suggestion. And I'll just say that if you have any suggestion for, for me, for product, for review, for inclusion item of the day or something like that, please let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. Uh, next up on the debt thing, I'll just put it to you this way. If you use money you've been saving up to pay off a debt, to pay off a, pay a bill so that you don't go into debt, I promise you it's almost a magical thing. You'll repay yourself the money you spent faster than you will ever repay the debt. So good decision on that. Now, on homestead improvements, let's look at some of the stuff you said, like, I want a fence, I want some chickens, etc. And you're making a decision about what to do and what not to do, and you probably are going to be in the property for five to ten more years. That's a long time. That's a lot. You know, ten years is a long time. So if it improves your quality of life and gives you what you want and you can afford it, I say go for it. Now, some some things to think about. It's possible that you'll sell the property to somebody that won't want chickens. So however you manage your chickens, you should be able to make it where if somebody doesn't want chickens, it's real easy for the chickens to go away and for them not to have to do a whole lot to, to, to make it a chicken-free environment. You know, So if you have a chicken coop, you either want it to be something that really converts easily into a storage shed or something that can just go away, something like that. But, you know, if, if that's going to be something that's probably... As things continue to develop the way they are with homesteading, it might be advantageous that you have chicken infrastructure. But I want you to think really you know, carefully about how you're going to manage and have chickens and how many chickens you're going to have. You're going to have you know, a half dozen or less birds. They're probably not going to tear too much up on an acre, but you're going to have to keep them out of your garden. Uh, so it's probably going to be easier at that point to keep chickens out than to try to keep the chickens in somewhere. Though if you could set something up with rotational chicken grazing with something like ElectroNet, that's probably ideal. And that's very portable infrastructure. And the nice thing about that is the charger, the netting, all that stuff, when you leave, can go with you. So try to think a little bit Joel Salatin-like about any type of infrastructure you put in for livestock. On a fence, a perimeter fence on one acre, what this does is you know, there's two things I look at when I when I think about doing something on a property, especially if I know I'm not going to live there for the rest of my life. Number one, does it make the property more marketable? Two, will it pay for itself in value when I sell it? Okay, so in other words, if I put $20,000 into a, a new kitchen and that lets me sell the house for at least $20,000 more than if it wasn't there, then it's a no-brainer if I'm going to sell that house. I'm going to get my money back, and I get to use it until I leave, right? 
But if I'm going to put $20,000 into the kitchen, and it's probably going to increase the equity value of the home even five to ten years from now by, let's say, $10,000, then I have to honestly say I'm paying $1,000 a, a year on ten years to have this kitchen, and $10,000 of it's coming back to me. So I'm, I'm you know, it's, I've, it's really $2,000 a year, but I'm paying $1,000 in, in reality if I ever sell the home. So then we're back to does it make it more marketable? A brand new spanking kitchen does make a home more marketable. It's one of the most, one of the best marketability things you can do in a home is kitchen, bathroom, paint, floors. When we look at a fence, does a fenced property make the property more marketable? You bet your ass it does. There's not a person out there that goes, gee, I wish this property didn't have a fence around it. Does it increase the value of the property to pay for the fence? In general, no. Of all the appraisals I've looked at, when I've looked at the value they place on fencing, I could never install that fence for what the appraiser says the fence is worth. Couldn't build it for what the appraiser says it's worth. Um, and, and that would be even, in all, like when I look at mine, the, the value of the perimeter fencing, well, I was like, I could never afford to put that fencing in. And the fencing was put in in the 1980s. So there's the other way you get it back. If you do something long enough in the past, you know, 10 years is pretty long, uh, you can get to the point where the cost of installing it today is so much higher than the cost when you did it that it will effectively pay for itself. Don't bet on it with fencing. So I would do the fencing five to ten years without a fence is a long time to live without a fence when you want a fence in your life. But I would be smart and strategic about it. And what I would say is anytime you're going to be selling a property, you want to do things for you, but for the market as well. So really think, like, will this turn buyers off? Will somebody look at this property and go, I don't really like that, and that's hard to change. And you have to understand something else about the psychology of buyers. Buyers are idiots. Not not all, but now, see, everybody's a buyer at some point. So obviously not all buyers. But in general, the average home buyer is a moron. And, and you can use this to your advantage or you can you know use it to your disadvantage. Here's what I mean. The average home buyer looks at a house, really, really likes the house, but you know they had a weird kid that liked purple. So the kid painted the, the bedroom purple. Bright-ass purple. Like when you walk in, your eyes hurt purple. Now, this is not a problem. This is a purple room is not a problem. This is a couple hundred dollars worth of paint, and if you want somebody to do it for you, you can get somebody to paint a room for 500 bucks. This is a $500 fix that can be done before you move in, and you won't ever see the purple room again. But buyers will actually be turned off of a house over something that stupid. And then they'll try to talk around an appraiser who says, hey, there's a foundation problem here, which is actually a problem. So when you do something, if it's going to turn people off, it only not only needs to be easy to make it go away, but you might want to think about what if I have to make it go away before I leave so that they don't see it so they don't get tripped up by it. So those are the types of things to think about. A garden, I think a garden... Every place I've ever lived, I put a garden in, and, and, and all those houses sold fast. So I, I would go definitely ahead with the garden. But that's the two things to look at with anything you're going to do. Does this improvement, investment, etc., pay for itself when I sell the house, especially factoring in inflation over time, and does it make the property more marketable? 
And if it doesn't pass those two tests, am I willing to pay this much to have it in my life like I'm renting it? And if it doesn't make the house more marketable, then the question is, does it make it less marketable? And if that's the case, then can I make it go away when it's time to leave? And in that instance, from that point forward, you do what you want. And it's a funny thing sometimes, you know, I've seen people, this is not going to be my forever place. And then they really put stuff into it and they realize, you know what, I actually really love it here. So unless you're moving for a larger macro reason, such as, I hate this state, this is California and i got to get the hell out of here, you know, think about the fact that you may end up deciding that you're happy to grow where you're planted and let that be part of your guidance as well. With that, let's take another one. This one on valuing a business. Actually, before we do, there's a, I got a little like micro-announcement here I was, I was supposed to make at the beginning of the show. I need calls, guys. 866-65-THINK. I need calls. I don't know what happened this morning. I feel like somehow like a, half a dozen or more calls disappeared in my inbox. And I did the search for, you know, the call eight, which is the service I use, and unopened. And I don't know what the hell happened, but I feel like there was a stack in this last two weeks of calls that came in that disappeared, just flat out disappeared like a mystery. So if you've called in the last couple of weeks and hadn't heard anything back, call back in because I have nothing very, very recent. In fact, a couple of calls today are some old ones I dug up out of archives that have never been used. The other thing, please, please call from quiet areas. Please make sure you have a few bars on your phone, and please speak loudly. Speak into your phone as though you are standing at the front of a classroom and you want the kid in the desk at the back of the classroom to be able to hear you. I had five calls today that I had to not use because of not following those procedures. One, the person talked so quiet. I could not, even with amplifying the shit out of it, understand what he was saying. Uh, another guy called in using SpeakPipe and was garbled as the day is long. Um, and just a couple others that just, I could not use the call, guys. So try again. Speak loudly and clearly as though you want the person in the back of the room to hear you. Don't yell. Just speak loudly and clearly and into the phone. Hey, there's this microphone in your phone and down where the voice part of your mouth is, right? And you, you need to talk into that. Uh, if you're using a headset and it's got a little microphone thing on it, make sure it's actually near your mouth, uh, not in your pocket or wherever the hell it was for one person. I'm not complaining. I, I mean, I want to answer your questions. And to be able to do it, I have to be able to understand what you're asking. The call has to have reasonable enough audio quality that I can play it for the audience. Uh, I even have one today that just got cut off, but it was enough to use it. So anyway, please uh, check your connections, speak loudly and clearly. And now let's take that question on business valuation. Hey, Jack. was curious how you go about valuing a business, specifically an on-farm business. Just a couple weeks ago you had talked about selling your duck egg business and you put a value on it, and I was curious how you came up with that value. Is it just, the, you know, the, your ducks or I'm assuming most of your customers weren't contracts. I mean, how do you value the, those non-contract repeat customers, whether it's farm business or other business? Appreciate it. So there's there's a lot of different ways to value a business. Um, 
And the, like the gold standard is known as the Blackmore Method. And there's a company called Blackmore Partners, and um, larger corporations will often, if they're going to be sold, uh, hire Blackmore Partners to do a business valuation. And there's something known as the Blackmore Formula. And while it's not 100% like here's a, here's a workbook, Uh, there's a lot of companies that do business valuations that follow the Blackmore formula, and if you want to look up the Blackmore formula, you can get a pretty good approximation of what it is. It's a bit overkill for most of um, your smaller concerns, but it's a good basis to look at. And most, most entrepreneurs that set up something like an LLC or whatever, when they write a shareholder's agreement or a partner's agreement with an LLC, Uh, we'll, we'll specifically say that at any time, like if one partner wants to buy out the others, you'll we use the Blackmore formula or approximate to value the company. So that's your gold standard. A lot of people will just say it's revenue times a multiplier. So it's your revenue times two years, your revenue times three years, depending on the industry, it'll vary. I hate that. I despise that. I find that to be absolutely preposterous. And here's why. Let's say that it, you have a business, a little small side concern business, just $25,000 a year in revenue, and you want to sell me the business for $75,000. And you can prove to me you have $25,000 a year in revenue, and that in our industry that we're talking about, three times revenue is something that's pretty standard. I don't give a shit. Because how much of that $25,000 is profit? How much of that $25,000 is profit? And that's... You see where I'm going with that, right? You could have a $25,000 revenue stream and be uh, losing $5,000 a year. So I'm going to pay you $75,000 to lose $15,000 over three years if I continue to run the business the way that you are. So I, I like to look at profit and then some type of a multiplier times that. So if you have a business that's doing $25,000 a year, but it's making about $10,000, then I would probably be, if I wanted to be in that business and this otherwise fit my life, be willing to look and entertain the concept of paying you maybe $30,000 for that business. There's another way to look at this, and that is, if that business makes you ten grand a year, how much money would I have to put into treasury bills, which is your, your, your guaranteed investment, right? your rock-solid investment, to make the same amount of money per year? So there are people, like Warren Buffett actually uses this formula, um, and I think it works with bigger businesses, but I don't know that it works with smaller concerns. Let's say that tre treasuries were paying 3%. They're not, but let's say they are. And uh, you can make ten grand a year. Well, I need about $300,000 to spit out ten grand a year. So that will put an absolute cap on what I'd be willing to pay for that business. To me, that cap's way too high, though. So I'm more of the opinion that you're looking at what is the profitability of the business, uh, what, is the, what is the ability of the business to maintain its current trajectory, its baseline, uh, in absence of the ownership that's leaving. For instance, it would be very difficult for me to sell this business now, wouldn't it? How well would this business do if you got on the, the air tomorrow and you're listening to it and you said, Hi, this is, this is Pee Wee McHerman and I bought this business and I'm your new podcaster. You know, I mean, it would just, uh, you know, but somebody that was really charismatic and could carry it on. And if I got old and they wanted to pick it up, maybe, but they would have to look at it differently than a straight numbers thing. So how do you fit into the business? 
For me, when I looked at selling the entire duck business, I threw all that shit out. Here's what I thought. What price can I put on this that's such a good deal that somebody that wants to be in this business would be stupid to not go ahead and take this opportunity? And that's really what I did. I think it was like $2,500, and you got the ducks. You got all the extra stuff that the ducks use. You got the website. I mean, it was the full business. And nobody stepped up and wanted it. So I went back to it. I'm parting out the ducks now as we speak. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a pretty lowball number. If I would have done kind of what we're saying here, number one, like I said, the business started to not really make money because Dorothy wasn't dedicating her time to it anymore. But it was probably making us about ten thousand bucks a year when we were running it properly. So it would have been reasonable to ask for something like let's say twenty thousand dollars for it. I just I wouldn't buy our business for twenty thousand, so I'm not going to ask twenty thousand for it. You know, it might work out by the numbers and all, but I could recreate everything we had for a couple thousand bucks. So that's kind of where I, you know, priced it. You know, get a website, whatever, and yeah, I mean, I I have number one ranking for duck eggs, Fort Worth duck, duck eggs, Dallas, etc. It's such a non-competitive thing. So you could even hire an SEO guy for 500 bucks to replicate that if you really wanted to, uh, maybe a thousand. Uh, and I wouldn't pay him until he got it done because it's something they should be able to do very, very quickly. So that's, I, again, I kind of lowballed and thought if it was somebody from this audience and we had a couple friends that were looking at it and what I wanted it to be, like, I'm really leery about selling my used car to a friend. Because whatever goes wrong with it, even though there's nothing I can do about that, it's kind of always attached to me. So I also thought, like, if I sell it at this price, basically it's about the value of all the ducks plus their feeders and all that shit and a little bit on the business side. Like, if, if you decided you didn't want to do it, you could just sell the ducks and get half your money back. That was kind of how I did that. But it's not the best way. I have an article from Entrepreneur that goes through some of the different methods of valuation in the show notes today. But I, I got to say, at the small business level, the value is very subjective and it needs to be worked out on, again, what is current profitability and what do you think you can do with it and what's that worth to you versus starting it up yourself. And the way you have to look at it as a buyer is if I wanted to be in this business tomorrow, how much would it cost me and how much is that customer base worth? What you're really buying when you buy a business more than anything else is the customer base because the business's assets other than the customer base um, can be purchased directly from a supplier. Um, the business's expertise are probably leaving with the ownership. So when you're, especially when you're talking, the smaller the business, the more that's true. The bigger the business, you know, as long as you're going to retain employees, you return their expertise. So you, you got to balance all this out, and it's a, it's almost a voodoo science, right, to 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 do it because it's going to be different. It's going to be different. You know, is the is the owner exiting the sector, or are they going to go create another company and come back and compete with you? Do you have a non-compete agreement with them? Do you need a non-compete? All of these things are, are really important. But remember what you're buying is the customer base and how loyal and stable is that customer base in absence of the new ownership. The other thing you're buying is the goodwill, which is directly linked to the customer base. If you looked on McDonald's balance sheet, they have a multi-billion dollar asset that's completely intangible, and all it is is what's called goodwill. So what's the goodwill of the business? Uh, is it and is it is it directly is it the business's goodwill 
or is it the owner's goodwill? I have a, pro a lot of goodwill in TSP, but it's really Jack Spirico's goodwill. If I sold it to you, it's only going to give you so much, so you got to look at that too. Hopefully that helps. I know it's not a direct answer, but it's one of those questions that there's a different answer for every business. Let's, uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, what equipment or programs, what minimum equipment or programs would I need to start a podcast based mostly around interviewing people in a specific field? Uh, background, uh, I know most of the programs you could want to run with this. I just don't know which ones would be the cheapest, easiest way to do this over the internet doing interviews. Thank you. Um, it depends on how you want to do it. I mean, your, your baseline of equipment that you need, you need a good studio quality microphone. That is something to me that if you're going to be doing this seriously, you need. I use a microphone and I'll put links to all of this stuff in the show notes, uh, made by Samsung, S-A-M-S-O-N. It's the C-O-1-U microphone. Um, I really, really like it, and I use a microphone on my Mac made by a company called Apogee, A-P-O-G-E-E, -E, and uh, it's basically made for Macintoshes, and I, I really like the quality of it as well. It's a bit smaller. It doesn't sit as high in the stand, so you, if you were using it as a dedicated mic, I'd recommend a, a little different mic stand than the one it comes with to get it up by your voice. You need a good set of uh, monitoring uh, headphones, The ones I use are made by uh, Sony. They're Dynamic Stereo uh, MDR7506. I do not use these when I am doing a podcast like today. I use them when I'm interviewing a guest. It prevents getting feedback back through the speakers when you're talking to them. Um, and it's, it's weird. This changed over time. I, I use Skype, which I love. And I use a recording program called Pamela, which I also love. And for years, I did my podcast without earphones. I just listened through the speakers, and there was never any feedback. So you didn't hear the guests talking over themselves where they're talking and are getting recorded on, on one end of the conversation on their input. And on, they're also getting re-recorded when the microphone uh, is picking up the sound from the speakers and I went for years with that not being the case and I also did recordings on my Mac without that being the case all of a sudden one day I started having horrible audio pro problems and I started using different methods of recording and I would keep running into these problems this is on two different machines uh, using different software and I kept having this problem I got smart plugged in a set of headphones to see if it worked it took the problem away from now forward Every time I'm recording on any device with an interview, I'm using a set of headphones. I've been through a couple different ones. I finally found these ones. I love these. I'll put a link in the show notes to them. They're not cheap. They're about 75 bucks. You said need. You do not need them. You can take your earbuds from your, your cell phone or whatever, your music player, and you can use those. Having done this a while and being willing to invest a little bit of money, that's what I've settled on, and I, I, I bought a cheap pair of this style of uh, headphones, and they lasted about three or four months, and I threw them away and I bought a good set. For audio editing, I use a program called Sony Vegas Pro. It's very expensive. It's about a thousand bucks. You do not need it. Uh, I had it already for video editing. I've had you know various versions of it going back over ten years now. 
I know it like the back of my hand. I would say I am a Sony Vegas Ninja. So I am not going to use a different program. You can do all of the editing you need to do for a podcast using Audacity. A-U-D-A-C-I-T-Y. And Audacity is what I use for recording when I'm doing standalone shows like this. It's a great recording program. It is a clunky editor. I probably feel that way because I don't edit with it much. And if I had, had learned to edit with it, I'd probably think it's just fine. So as long as you're willing to um, screw around with it, you can, you can use it. It has a fatal flaw that has a solution that I do not know why Audacity won't just freaking fix and include with it. Um, it needs a file that is called lame DLL. I believe it's, it's lame something. DL something or DLL. And you need this for Audacity to be able to put out a file in MP3 format. Otherwise, it does WAV and some other things, but it won't do MP3 unless you get this lame encoder DLL file. On a PC, it's about as easy as anything. If you can make a podcast, you can do this. You go download the thing, and you and it just works. On a Mac, I went through hell a couple days ago when I had to use my Mac to record and produce a show because my computer had a problem, uh, my PC had a problem, and I eventually figured it out. And I completely did not listen to the tutorial anymore of how to do it, dug into the zip file, found the individual file, and yanked it out. And then I could I don't know if I could do it again. It was a nightmare on a Macintosh. And somebody in the Audacity community needs to make it not a nightmare. It's one tiny-ass file. It doesn't need to be in a zip file. It's one... I'm, I'm, see how pissed I am about this? It's one stupid, tiny-ass, couple-kilobyte file... All you need to do is put it somewhere and say, here it is. So I don't know what kind of freaking intellectual retard is behind the Mac zip thing, but you're an idiot, and take the damn one file and put it somewhere with Audacity's community and say, here it is. Once you have it, it's not that hard. But find it again? Jeez. So if you're going to use a Mac, I don't know that you want to go with Audacity. I also personally would not use a Mac... Because it, it's, it's, again, you need a degree in computer science to get a program called Levelator to work with it. Levelator is free for your PC. And I use it, especially a show like this, and especially an interview. Okay, If you're not going to have mixer boards and all and be playing with stuff, and I recommend you don't, you're going to have the, the, the guest that comes on, and they sound real quiet like this, and you have the guest that comes on and talks really, really loud like this. And you're somewhere in between. So you want the, 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 the whole show equalized. So what you do is you get your podcast all edited and you generate it in a .wav file, Microsoft.wav file. And then you just take that file and you drag it into Levelator. And Levelator starts making little up and down audio bar things go so that you know it's doing something. That's why they, it doesn't really, that's not actually doing anything. It's just so you know it's working. And it'll take, depending on how long the file is, you know, a minute to five, ten minutes to, to do this. And it'll create whatever folder that file is in. You go look at that folder, and if your file was called, oh, I don't know, 3118 for today, it'll say 3118.output.wav. And that's the new one, the one that it put out. That will be all equalized. You're going to take that back into your editor of choice, and then you're going to recreate it in MP3. Because do not put your podcast out in a WAV file 
That's like 400 billion gigabits in size. You want MP3 and you want it encoded at a lower rate. Um, I personally encode all my podcasts at 32 kilobits per second. That's FM quality radio. That's good enough for an audio podcast. The other thing you want to do, when you, when you level all of that shit out, you don't want to put any music or anything like that into it because you want to control the sound of that differently. Songs go up and down in volume, and they're supposed to. So you would append your music on the end, the beginning, etc. after you had that WAV output file. And again, what I would recommend for recording, uh, for standalone recording, just you, Audacity. For um, recording interviews, I would either recommend you do what I do and you use Skype and Pamela. And Pamela is like 30 or 40 bucks. Skype's free, obviously. The reason I like Skype You get a guest. What's your Skype handle? I don't have one. Why not? I have dial-up internet, or I live with satellite internet, and it's not reliable, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. What's your cell phone number? What's your landline phone number? Skype, you buy really cheap credits, and you can call, and you can still do the interview. If you are going to accept that if a person doesn't have decent internet connection, you're not going to have them as a guest, and if you know most of your guests are, it's going to be a problem. Uh, Paul Wheaton's been trying to sell me on something called Zoom, Z-O-M-M. And uh, he uses it. He loves it. He says it works just perfectly slick. You can do video conferencing, audio conferencing. You can record everything. So I recommend you look into that, too. I will put links to most of this stuff, anyway, in the show notes for you so you can check it out. But, again, I'm back to I use Sony Vegas to edit, Audacity to record a standalone show, Pamela in combination with Skype to record interviews. I do all my editing in Vegas. Um, and... That's it. My problem with Audacity as an editor is a limitation on the compression of the MP3 files. I think you can compress down to 64 or maybe 128. That's two to three times the file size. When you're doing interviews, you're probably not doing a 10-minute show. And there's people that are audio snobs in podcasting. I call those people, in general, not all of them, but in general, broke. They have the highest quality audio in the world, but a 15-minute show that takes them three years to produce will take you know the person on a good DSL connection freaking 20 freaking minutes to download because it's encoded at like you know 256 or something like that. Or they can download my one and a half hour podcast in about a minute because it's compressed down to 32 kilobits, which is as good as FM radio. Audacity doesn't see, now somebody might be an Audacity Ninja and there might be a plug-in or there might be a setting I don't know where you can compress more um, but I think you're going to be limited in how much compression you can get I will say this for Audacity if you want to know how to do something on it and you're willing to learn and take a little bit of time there's a 14 year old or a 16 year old on YouTube with a screen capture video to show you how to do it you, you might have to weed through four or five people that you're like I, I will kill myself before I listen to this person speak for another 30 seconds. But you will find a competent person that can say, do this, this, and this, this will work. So th there's my deal. Now, if anybody out there produces a podcast and you have a good editing software, you know, that's a hundred bucks or less, let me know about it so I can recommend it to others. I, I cannot in good conscience recommend that the average person go out and spend $800 to $1,000 on a suite of software that's really designed to be high-end video editing just for an audio podcast. Um, again, it's what I use. I love it. I think it is the best thing since sliced bread, so to say. 
but I don't think the person that's just starting a podcast should be spending their money that way. Uh, I also recommend there's a guy out there that you can listen to that about the only thing he talks about is how to do a podcast, and he's called the Podcast Answer Man. He's not my favorite person, but he is good at what he does. He is a bit of an audio snob, but he does have good, solid recommendations on how to do things. So he, he'll probably go with a lot higher-end equipment, but you can go lower-end and still have everything work with him. Anyway, uh, I'll put a link, like I said, to most of the stuff and the podcast answer, man, in today's show notes. Hey, Jack. Just wanted to let you know uh, the Red Yeti Wear kitchen shears are back on Amazon. I know you'd mentioned in a previous podcast that they were no longer available, but it looks like as of February, they are back up now. That, that's indeed good news. Uh, Red Yeti Wear is a, a, a sheer, uh, kitchen shear that I recommended, I think the first time almost two years ago. And as I go through my item recommendations and decide which ones to bring back around, You know, I'll go through and say, look, cooking today, and we'll go back and look. Oh, yeah, okay. Right. And it was, I think, around August or September of last year that I went to rerun those because I am so fond of them, and they're something I use so many times a day uh, that, uh, or so many times a week, I should say. I don't use so many times a day that, that I, I just think they're just the, the best thing out there for kitchen shears. And what, here's the catch. They were like $12.95 with free shipping. Uh, now they're like $14 bucks plus $7 shipping or something. I did the math. They're like $11 and change more than they were when I first recommended them. Uh, I'll have a link to my review of them in today's show notes. I'll have to amend that review, but they're, you know, it's there. You can link over and get them. I think even at the higher price point, they're worth it, and they might be worth picking up before they disappear again. Um, here's, here's why. The kitchen shears that I've been recommending since Red Yeti Wear disappeared are made by Fiskars. Fiskars is a damn good company. They're a seven-inch set of take-apart shears. They're twelve sixty-nine, so they're a, a little less than half the price of the Red Yeti Wear. So is the Red Yeti Wear product at least two times better than the Fiskars product? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what it comes down. Yes, it is. Um, and, and there's certain things I look for in shears that the Red Yeti wear has. One, they must come apart. You must be able to take them apart to clean them. If I'm going to cut the back out of a chicken, you know, a raw piece of chicken, I'm going to cut the backbone out of it and throw it in my stock bag and build up chicken backbones and fly enough to make chicken stock and wingtips and stuff like that. And the next day I'm going to take some leaves that are going into a salad and cut them with them. I, I am not using something I cannot take apart. I do not want salmonella or other chicken diseases, right? So it has to come apart. It has to be powerful, and it has to cut well. The Fiskars are good shears. That's why I recommended them as my number two. They don't have micro serrations into them. They have basically a sort of kind of serration thing going on. It works okay. Those Red Yeti wear. They cut through a chicken backbone like you're cutting construction paper with a good sharp pair of shears. It is, they are phenomenal. So I think they're worth the extra money. I will amend the review soon and probably run them back through again. But if you want to get them, they're available again. Except, you know, again, they're, what it, it looks to me like a third party seller picked them up 
And since they're not being run directly through fulfilled by Amazon or Prime or anything like that, they're having to ship them. They're a pretty decent sized thing. They're probably using USPS priority mail or something if it fits its ships and figuring paying somebody for packing them all, they're charging $750. And it's, I mean, if they were available in the store, I'd say go get them there and save the seven bucks. But I've never seen them anywhere but Amazon ever. So, uh, so check them out and definitely consider adding them to your, your kitchen setup. And sometimes when people pick something up like this, if it doesn't go real well for them, they, uh, they stop. So I, I already know what happens, right? I feature something on the air and it gets sold out. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it does happen. So I already bought, I only had one pair of them. I just went and bought two pairs. So I will always have a set of them because about once a week I can't find them. I have to use the Fiskers until they show up. I don't know what it is with me. I lose shit. Anyway, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Mike with uh, Mr. Cranberry's Farm in Corsicana, Texas. Just uh, had a quick question about what plants to put in a pond. Uh, background is we've just... Dang it. Background is we just, and that's the one I was talking about. That came in on speak pipe and the guy's mic or something, because the, the rest of the call went like another minute, and it kept recording. There ain't no audio at all, but I'm going to do my best with this, because I think this is probably a question a lot of people have, and it it's a great big it depends, and, and unfortunately now I don't know what it depends on here. But let's let's look at it from a standpoint. We're not talking about a Jack Spierko Miyagi pond or a uh, you know, stock tank pond or a garden pond. We're talking about a pond pond, you know, something that's a uh, you know twenty by sixty up to half of an acre or maybe even bigger, you know. Well, you, the truth is, you don't have to plant anything if we're talking about that kind of a pond, because those types of ponds they're going to develop aquatic vegetation. And I think you have to look at your goals. Now, the store I'll recommend, and I, I think so highly of these people, I've reached out to them like a bazillion times about joining the MSB, and, and they're one of these companies that don't even tell you to F off, you know, like, shut up, jerk, we don't want to talk to you. They just don't answer you, like, screw, they don't even care to answer. Uh, and I bought a lot of stuff from them. It's called Pond Megastore, and they're at pondmegastore.com. And what I like there is you can go and you can find... You know, your floating plants, your shelf plants, your bog plants, your submerged plants, and you can go through and figure out what you're looking for. Personally, I think it makes a lot of sense to plant things that propagate uh, that maybe you can sell a little bit of. So I would look at perennial water, uh, I'm sorry, perennial uh, lily pads and perennial lotus. Um, and I would look at planting at least some of them and in great big flower pots that sit on the bottom of your pond so that when it comes to propagating more of them, you can pull that out and just harvest rhizomes because a lot of people that have things like koi ponds and stuff, this is a high dollar value to them. So when you have something like that, you get the benefit, you get the beauty, and some of the water lotuses, you know, they have edible seeds and things like that. So that's something that I would look at. As far as, as like floating, like everybody loves duckweed. Duckweed, duckweed, duckweed. Yeah. I have kind of come down on salvinia. Frogbit's another good floater to get in there. I mean, you know, that's a, a, you want to wait a little bit till you're a little bit warmer in the season to, to get a plant like salvinia. Your problem is you probably will 100% winter kill, and you'll either have to take some inside 
uh, and then reseed it every year, or you're going to have to buy some every year. But I've, I've found Selvinia to be absolutely outstanding. One of the easiest things to do is to look at the bodies of water around you and the, the vegetation that grows in them natively. But please, for your own sanity, identify the vegetation before you take some of it home with you. Because you might find something like coontail will completely take over a small pond, even though it does really okay in a, in a great big lake. Um, in fact, it does even present problems in great big lakes at, at times. You also have to decide, like, well, how much of it are you willing to remove? Do you want to remove it? Uh, my buddy David turned his swimming pool into a pond, and he grows you know, floating plants like water lettuce. And, you know, when you get into the warm part of the year, that stuff's pretty much doubling every three or four days. And it's a pretty big plant. You're talking about a plant that grows about the size of a small head of lettuce. That's what they call it. It looks, looks similar to lettuce. Unfortunately, it's not, it's not inedible, but you don't want to eat it. Let's put it that way. But to him, it's just a, it's, it's just great. Cause you just reach in and he builds these little baskets, uh, that you grow plants and you just keep throwing them in there and they basically break down and build soil and they're watering the plant because water plants hold so much water. So you have to ask yourself about that. A lot of the stuff I grow in my little garden ponds, I've found, I have this beautiful reed grass. It's a soft rush is what it is. We were hunting. The guy had a, like a five-acre pond that you could fish in, and this soft rush was growing in there. I went and grabbed a shovel. I'm like, I don't give a shit if I take some reeds out of his pond. So, you know, I took a shovel and dug one little clump up, and I've given a couple clumps to some friends, and I've got a bunch of clumps of it in my, you know, it's, it's a beautiful plant. Uh, I have a plant called Corkscrew Rush that I got from Pond Megastore. It's a, it's a great plant. These are emergent or uh, bog-type plants. A lot of your your uh, lilies uh, and irises, you know the difference between a water iris and an iris is? One of them's growing in water or bog-like conditions. Basically, all of those irises and most of the lilies that are in all of the box stores right now, you know where they have a very big bin and they have pictures of all the pretty flowers on them and stuff like that, um, and they sell the bulbs for them, Almost all of those are good bog and emergent vegetation and uh, marginal plants, plants that, you know, maybe not in the water but right at the water's edge. Uh, another great plant for your marginal areas, your emergent areas, uh, will be taro. And the taro, of course, very famous Hawaiian plant. And I have some blue Hawaiian taro. It's a beautiful plant. But in the end, it's elephant ears. And you can go to a garden center and buy different size elephant ears and just right at the edge or just, you know, in the shallows, and they'll do just fine, and they'll overwinter for you. The most productive plant you can put into your, your, your pond edges as far as a food plant is water chestnut. It is the most productive plant per square foot for edible uh, yield in the world. Nothing else comes close. I guess you can eat duckweed. Maybe you could make a case for that, but that's commonly used as a food source, right? It's, uh, it, it's just a fantastic plant. But I really recommend what you do is get on by pondmegastore.com and it's, it's basically a catalog of plants and it'll tell you, like, will it work in your zone? What are its growth characteristics? Is it an invasive threat, uh, to your pond? You will find, I think you said you're from Texas, you will find There are some plants that would be fantastic plants for you to put in your pond, especially if you're willing to do some control of them, that are illegal to propagate in the state of Texas. And any licensed, basically, nursery, a good plant 
store for aquatics, just like any other plant store is going to have a, a nursery license, will not ship to you. Um, you know, maybe some of those things might find their way to your pond, and if you want to know what they are, the, the good people in your state will publish a list of things that are banned, and you can go look at what those are, and you might decide that some of those actually might be useful, but you're not supposed to do it, and you do what you want with that information. Uh, so hopefully that helps you. What I would love you to do is get back with me, either by email or another voice message, and fill me in on the part that I missed, and I'll see if I can tailor a little bit more towards you. And anybody who goes to Pond Megastore and buys from them, if on your order you would include a note that says, heard about you from Jack Spirico at the Survival Podcast, he'd like to talk to you. Maybe if they get enough business this spring, maybe they will open up the doors of communication and I can land them as a discounter because I really love the quality of their plants, the service of their shipping, their pricing, their availability, their variety. They're awesome, but they don't want to talk to me. It's funny, you know, you give them an order for a few hundred bucks and they still want to talk to you. I don't know, man. Uh, but uh, if you buy something there, let them know you heard about them from me. Hey, Jack, a uh, quick follow-up to the last question about storing the water. Um, I had thoughts of piping in like a 30 or 55 gallon drum in my actual water supply, so that way there would always be, always be fresh water in there. Um, I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that, if that was a good idea or a bad idea. I didn't want to make the original call too long, so thanks a lot. This is one of them older calls that I dug up for today because I was short on calls because of whatever the hell happened to me, some technical gremlin or something today. Um, so I don't remember the original call that this is appended to, and I... Uh, I don't remember what my answer to it was, but I, I, I do like this question, but I also am not necessarily a huge fan of this for your potable drinking water, and I'll tell you why. So let's talk about what he's talking about doing first. Basically, he's talking about you get yourself one of those blue, um, you know, made-for-water, for potable water, uh, HDPE barrel drums, I mean 30 gallon, 55 gallon, uh, and you you plumb in a fitting on both sides of it, and you hook that up to your water supply, and whenever you turn your sink, your shower, etc. on, water comes in from your supply and goes through that barrel, and you get your water out the other end, and you're pushing it through that barrel. And that way, if there is ever a time that you don't have water, that water is there in reserve. And on one level, I want to say, just go ahead and do it. Because in essence, it's what I have going on in my house, because I have pressure tanks. Because I only have so much pressure available, and I have old pipes in my house and all. I have these tanks, and water fills them up, and there's an air bladder in them. And that adds to the pressure, and that gives me good water pressure throughout the house, or I should say decent water pressure throughout the house. And that's what they're doing. And, and, and because of that, this is actually a pretty cool thing. If my well's off because the power's out, I got about 40, 50 gallons of water with pressure to my house before I don't have it anymore. And that's, that's a good thing. Um, my concern, in one of those blue drums especially kept at like inside the house at you know room temperature 70 odd degrees we talked about this uh, yesterday with uh, or a couple days ago with you know little hysteria threat I don't think it's very big but I think it's possible 
It's also one of those things with pressure on it, and it's not really meant to do that. You know, and it can some light can get through that blue plastic. Not a lot, but some. I don't know. I I don't know that I want my water constantly running through there. That said, I would have no problem using that drum to store water in. So I would say, and, and it would not then be in line. So there's two different ways I would personally come at this, and I might be being a little bit of a safety weenie, and I'm usually the last guy to do it, but I'm just thinking of the whole totality of you know possible failures here. And so I would either do this. If you wanted to have it as a pass-through water reserve, I would put this outside, and I would hook it up to one of the hose bibs on your house that you water your garden with, etc., and then that water would be outdoors. And if something failed on it, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. And if you plumbed it so you had a liter hose come off your hose bib to the, to the barrel, and then a hose bib come off the barrel to your main hose, if you had any kind of a plumbing failure there, well, you just disconnect the barrel. It's now not in line with your actual plumbing to your actual home or even to the hose bib, if you get my point. So if there's a failure, it, it's no big deal. Or if, you know, in the end, if you plumb it in line to your home, what do you have? You have 35 to 50 gallons of reserve water. Well, if you just fill that barrel up, put a couple drops of bleach in it, you also still just have, I mean, since it's not a pressure tank, there's I don't see a tangible tactical benefit to doing it in line other than you do get the water flushing through it and you probably use more than 35 gallons a day so it would be fresh water that probably mitigates my concern about any kind of contamination from it sitting there in in that format but i don't think the value's there so i would either use them outdoors um and you could set up 10 of them in in a series outdoors and Constantly have new water in there. And then if you ever have to draw water from them, you know, that's what a Berkey's for, just to alleviate that final concern. Uh, and, you know, I just think you're in a better situation if something fails from a plumbing standpoint. Because, again, they're not really made for doing that. Uh, and as in our conversation earlier about things in a home, when you're going to resell them, do they actually increase value or decrease value? And something that's not really done to code might not, you know, I'm not thinking anybody's going to come rappel down your window and kick your door in to, to get you for a code violation with a barrel, but you're probably going to have to take it away when you sell the house, so why not do it in a, in a way that makes more sense? And then on top of it, if you plumb in basically a hose bib to the bottom of one of these things and elevate it, getting water out of it's easier. And, uh, you know, it, it may be a lot more difficult to manage that if you're having to fit it into your, your, your home's plumbing. So I, I, I just don't think you get enough value out of the inline nature of it to make it, you know, why not just store water in one if you want to do it that way? And then there's so much less to worry about. If anybody's doing this and thinks I'm over, I'm on overkill with it with safety and, and concerns and code and stuff, let me know. I'm open to being wrong about it. But my gut is either do it outdoors, attached to a hose bib, or if you're going to do it indoors, just store water in the barrel. Well, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Jacob here in Michigan. Looking for a recommendation on a 22 rimfire scope. 
It's going to be probably going on either a Henry Lever Action 10-22 or Browning Buckmark rifle with see-through sight rings. So just going to be a gun for around the farm, something that dealing with raccoons, coyotes further out. But just wondering what your recommendations are. Thanks in advance. I don't even have to think. Loophold, VX1, 2x7x33. You know why I'm recommending it? Because I have a 1022. That's on it. I have my old Marlin Model 25. I carried since I was a kid. Guess what's on it? The exact same scope. And I have a Ruger 77 and 357 Magnum. And even though the scope really is made for the 22, it's on that gun too. I have three of them on three different guns. And if I ever have another 22 needs a scope on it, guess what the hell's going on it? Loophole. VX1, 2x7. Redfield makes a pretty damn good 2x7 as well. It's almost as good as the loophole. I have another 22. It has that Redfield on it. It's only $10 less. And the difference in the clarity is noticeable. It's not enough that if the, if the Redfield sold for $99 and a loophole sold for what it does, about $190, then I would say for $90 less, get the Redfield. For $10 less, I'm not even, I'm done. And the two scopes are made in the same facility now because loophole bought Redfield. Um, and they're almost the same, but there is a difference in the optical quality of the loophole. So that's the scope. And I, I feel so strongly about it that I'm not going to recommend anything else. If you want to put a cheap scope on it, put a Simmons 4x4, uh, Simmons 22 mag, I'm sorry, Simmons, Simmons uh, 22 mag on it, and it costs you less than 50 bucks. I think they're like 30 bucks or something like that. It's fine, fixed 4 power, and I actually am a big fan of the 4 power scope for the 22. You said a little further out with coyotes, the, the 22 is not anything you're ever going to reach way out with. It's a 100 yard or less round, Four power is enough to shoot that far. Seven's a little bit easier to see certain things. So I like a seven power. What I like about this scope for the 22, it is small, it is lightweight, it doesn't overscope the gun. All of those guns you mentioned, they're small, lightweight, beautiful little guns. You throw a big old 40 millimeter objective, three by nine or something stupid on there, like a three to 12 or something like that. You just, the gun never feels right ever again. It just feels wrong. It doesn't have balance anymore. It's just the, too much scope to the gun. This loophole is a light little scope. It's sweet. It sits. And here's where I'm going to differ with you. Do not use look through rings for this gun. Just don't do it. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. Number one, 99% of the time, you're going to use the scope. You just are. So the scope should be an optimal eye height for your stock, which on my Ruger 10-22 is low mount rings. And the scope just barely fits with those lowest-ass rings. You know? And that's great because your cheek weld is almost the same as if you were shooting with the iron sights. It's that low. And that, again, makes the gun handle better, and it makes looking through the scope more natural. You're not picking your head up to see through the, the, the objective of the scope, and so you're going to shoot better. So since we're going to use the scope most of the time anyway, and we're better off with a lower mount, 
Let's just get rid of the see-through rings. If you want to do it, I'm not going to flay you over or nothing, but let me give you the other side. Why would you ever want to have your iron sights available to you with a Scope 22? Well, there's a couple reasons. One would be that you're so close to the target that it fills the scope. And the other would be a perceived advantage to shooting at running game. Okay? It's got a two-power setting. Leave it on two-power. I promise you, if you're shooting at a running coyote at 30 yards, you will do better with a two-power scope if, the, if you've got the proper eye relief and the proper cheek weld and all than you will do with iron sights. Because you get on the animal and you swing in front of it, you lead and you let it run into the... and bang! And this year, I shot my deer at about 50 yards... And I have a 3x9 on my 308, and I had it set down on 3 power. And I leave it on 3 power unless I need to turn it up. And that deer, I, I told the story, I was looking at some turkeys through the scope, the deer busted me, and she broke, and, that's ex and I, I put her heart out at 50 yards with 3 power setting on a scope. And I probably could have shot her with iron sights, but it wouldn't have been easier. And if you're so close that a setting of two power makes it hard to shoot something, you can just point the damn gun at it and shoot it. So I don't, I don't see enough advantage in those look-through rings to make it worth the disadvantage that they create by putting that scope higher above the line of sight than it should be and improper for your cheek weld, which it will be. So I'm going to recommend that you go with you know, a good quality set of like Weaver style or with the, you know, with the, with the 10, if you buy the 1022, which out of those, man, that's hard for me not to say to go with the Ruger. Um, it'll, it'll come with, I think it comes with a set of the rings for you. Um, but loophole VX one, two to seven by 33 in that classification, those lightweight, fast handling rifles, 22. Like I said, I have one on my 357. I, I can't recommend anything else. There's Loophole makes better scopes like the VX2, VX3 in about the same size, but the the additional cost is not worth it. For that, you know, I can't I can't recommend in good conscience go out and put a $600 scope on a $400 gun or a $300 gun or a $200 gun. I can't do it. I just can't and I won't. So that's the scope and that's why I recommend you go with the uh, with low mount rings or medium mount whatever will work the lowest scope rings that will work for the gun that you eventually decide on. Well, that wraps it up for today, guys. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I do feel like I'm kind of getting back in the groove here after going through this latest flu, crud, baby flu, whatever the hell it was. It's not slinger flu, as I've been calling it. The kids brought it to me. Um, but anyway, if you want to support this show and the work I do, and you want to do it a painless way, you know, how what you do, you know what all you have to do? When you're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. And you can see all of my reviews there. And you can just get on over and do your, your, your shopping to buy what you're going to buy anyway as well. As long as you go to tspaz.com first, you'll support survival podcasts and the work that we do. And like I said, you will see all my reviews. They're, break, they're all broken out by categories as well, so you can see all the past ones. I got a product I'm bringing back around for you guys today. The first time I reviewed this product was back on... Uh, January, I'm sorry, uh, July of 2016. And it's a flashlight. Maglite 3D cell LED flashlight. 
And with all of the cool tactical lights that are out there, you may wonder why I stick to this as like my primary recommendation. Well, um, I mean, for your bug out bag or for your, you know, your EDC or something, this is not the light that I recommend. For your blackout kit at home, I have one of these sitting in almost every windowsill of the house, to be honest with you. For the one that's like where you can grab it quick in your truck, uh, one maybe you'd keep in a boat, anything like that, this is my go-to recommendation. And it's because, number one, it always works. It just, it just does. Number two, it's bright. You get the brightness of it. Number three, D-cell batteries have a lot of reserve. They last a long damn time. Number four, it's a club. It is a blunt instrument. It will plumb knock your ass out. And I won't tell you exactly how I know, but I do know this. If someone ever sticks their head into your vehicle that shouldn't be, and you bust them in the face with it, they go away. And they don't come back. I'll tell you that for a fact. Uh, it also has a little product you can get that I have in my review for it. It's called the, the Bust-A-Cap Glass Breaker. This goes on the tail end of it, and it will bust more than a window, but it's really made as a window breaker, and it's a good thing to have in your vehicle in case you ever get stuck in a vehicle. Um, it's durable. I have one that looks like somebody used it to beat a nail sideways because I used it to, well, not really beat a nail sideways, but I had a... Uh, a problem with a gate latch that got twisted the wrong way, and I used the tail end of the because I was pissed, and it was raining, it was muddy, and I just needed it fixed so I could put the animals, and I beat the shit, and I was like, damn, I bet that's, nope, it's fine. It still works. Um, I just don't know anything, and it's, it's big. Everybody likes little. When it's black, dark, and you're trying to find that light that's in your windowsill or something like that, or you're find, trying to find it rolling around in the, the, the floor of your truck, a big thing is easier to find. So to me, it just it is the best product for that everyday use light, and I love it. I also love its its little little sister, the two cell uh, L, two C cell LED one. I got a link to that in the notes too. I keep one of those in my bug out kit. I keep one of those in my hunting bag because uh, they're a little bit small, a little bit more compact, and still give you most of what this one does. And, and I don't have any higher recommendation. I will tell you that there are people out there that say that this light has a problem. And they're right about the first generation when they first came out. When they first came out, because I was always a fan of this light. I've been using the mag lights since I was a little bitty kid. Uh, that's what we always use in our hunting kits and everything else, the little, little AA ones and all. And so when they came out with LED and went from the incandescent LED, I was like, man, this is great. So I bought one immediately. And within a week, I was like, this thing sucks. And what would happen is it would come on really bright and we could dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. So I gave up and I went back to using incandescents. And about six months later, I was talking to a buddy. He said, oh, they fixed that. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He goes, there was a problem with the heat sinks in the first generation and it would get hot. And once it got hot, it would start to fade. And it was kind of like, you know, where your batteries are going dead and you hit a light and it comes. It kind of acted like that. So I'm like, I'll give them another chance. It's Maglite, you know. So I bought it, and it was fine. And and once they corrected that problem, uh, and that's years and years ago, they've, they've never really had that kind of an issue ever again. Uh, I will say this. The reason I don't recommend a 4D cell LED, they don't make one. Maglite does not make it in 4D cell LED. However, there are conversion kits to convert from incandescent to LED. And if you just want one, you can get the 4D cell regular one, and you can convert it to LED. I don't do that because I have a feeling there's a reason that they don't make it. 
And it might have to do with that little heat sink issue that I just talked about. But remember, you can always support us how? tspaz.com. Easy, painless, money you're going to spend anyway. You just do your online shopping there and help us out. Um, the song of the day today is really, really old. This is really an interesting one. It's, it's by Kansas, Joe McCoy, and Memphis Minnie. And Memphis Minnie actually wrote this song. And you might, when I tell you the name of it, go, I know that song, because Led Zeppelin did this song. It's called When the Levee Breaks. And just to prove that people will fight and be nasty to each other about anything, if you go look at the YouTube video for this song, there's people in there calling each other cuss words over an argument about whether or not Led Zeppelin should have covered this song. What is this song about? This song is about the 1927 uh, flooding of the Mississippi River, which affected something like 22,000 acres or something. It's just an amazing amount of land. And it's, it, it's, it's also about how black people were treated in the South still up into the 1920s. Um, black plantation workers, which were basically people that were doing the same job slaves did, except they got paid for it and could quit if they wanted to, were forced to do relief work at gunpoint. And when all was lost, and the levee completely blew, and everybody else left, they, they weren't allowed to leave. They were put in internment camps. This is also a turning point in history. Up until this point, the black vote in the United States of America, and mostly the northern states' black vote, because there was such impropriety and disenfranchisement of voting of blacks in the South until the Civil Rights Act, was solidly with the Republicans. And Herbert Hoover was president while this was going on, and he promised to do something about it, and it cost him being renominated. Led us to the days of uh, Franklin Roosevelt as well. And this was... One of the key points that switched the black vote in America from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, which is a, a key turning point in America. And, and it also shows the way people were treated, and it basically tells a story of what it was like. It also created a mass migration of blacks from southern states to northern states. Because when the aftermath was full and done... A lot of the land that had been farmed did not go back into farming. And there was nothing for these people to do, so they headed north. And that caused its own. I mean, people talked about blacks being treated better in the north. Well, yeah, they were. But not a whole bunch of new ones showing up like what they really are, which is intercountry refugees taking jobs because they're willing to work for less. Caused all kinds of problems in and around Chicago that maybe will... We'll discuss sometime later. But it really expresses the angst and the pain that went on for people that dealt with this. And as much as I've talked about how it affected black people, this affected everybody. This was the largest flooding to date still. Nothing that's ever happened since this time has equated the amount of flooding that was that, that occurred during this. There's actually a link uh, in the show notes to the Wikipedia article on the 1927 flood. That's what this song's about. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 
break If it keeps on raining Love is going to break And the water gonna come And I have no place to stay Well, all last night I sat on the lever and moan Well, all last night I sat on the lever and moan Thinking about my baby And my happy own If it keeps on raining Levin's going to break If it keeps on raining Levin's going to break And all these people Have no place to stay Now look here, mama What am I to do? Now look here, mama What am I to do? I ain't got nobody To my trouble to I work on the lever, mama both night and day. I work on the lever, mama both night and day. I ain't got nobody to keep the water away. Baby, and my 